0: As a child, I'm sure that at some point you heard something along the lines from your parents or your guardians. We don't do that here. That's not something that we do here, whether it was we don't put our elbows on the table. Or whether it was we don't root for the Lakers. or a Grizzlies family here. Or whatever it was... That they said, we don't do that here because it was a matter of identity. It was a matter of who you are as someone in this family. And when you think about those things that are matters of identity, when you think about that phrase, we don't do that here, that is a call not just to have a certain viewpoint on something, not just to have a certain opinion on something. But it's a call to imitation, to imitate the way that your parents were, and maybe their parents were, and maybe their parents were. Whole families are Memphis Grizzly fans, for instance. But that's how we learn our identities. It's how we form our identities is by imitation, by imitating what we see in our parents, what we're taught by our parents and other mentors and other leaders. That's how identities are formed is by imitation. It's really how we learn anything at all when you think about it. And so when Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. He is calling us to be a part of the family of the Holy Trinity. And he is calling us, therefore, to have a certain life, a certain identity in ourselves. A life where we do certain things and not others. A life where we say and think about certain things and not others. A life where we go and walk certain places and not others. There are things as God's children that we do, and there are things that we don't do here. And even more than being part of an earthly family, being God's children, being imitators of God, is a whole way of life. Notice verse 2. And walk in love. This is one of the things that we do here. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to walk all the time, 24-7, every day, in love. Not just on Sunday mornings at 10:15. not just when it's daylight savings time and the sun is out longer than it was before, Not just some of the time, but all of the time. Because why? Who are we to imitate? We are to walk in love as Christ loved us. And how much, how often, ask yourself this, did Christ love us? If we are to love as Christ loved and sacrifice as he sacrificed, how much did he sacrifice for you? All of it. All of the time. His entire life, from the moment he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, to the moment he ascended into heaven, and even now, he walks in love. He walked in love for you all the way to the cross. And he gave himself up, all of himself, even to the point of death even to the point of suffering as a servant, even to the point of being stricken, smitten, and afflicted, he loved you. Sacrificed himself fully, completely, all the way, 24-7, all in, bought in for you. And so when Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us, that means that when we walk, we walk all the way. Paul even bookends this notion of walking in love with another way that you can think about this, not just the life of Christ, but at the end in verse 8 of this passage. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, and so walk as children of light. You can think similarly about light and dark and the way that it is all-encompassing. Because when there is light in a room, that means there is no darkness. They are definitionally opposed to one another. If you have darkness in one place and then you put light there, the darkness, it is completely, utterly gone. That's what John says at the beginning of his gospel. He says, when the light came in the world, talking about Christ, the darkness could not comprehend it. The darkness couldn't understand it. The darkness couldn't put up with it because the light was there. And notice, Paul doesn't even say, act like light. He says, you are light. One time you were darkness, but now you are light. That is who you are. It is foundational to your identity. It is who you are. And the darkness cannot comprehend it, so be light. This is your whole life. You are a baptized child of God. And so you have been brought into this family of the Trinity, and that is exactly what your enemies do not want. In the Gospel reading and the Old Testament reading, you can see this image of the enemies of God and the Old Testament Pharaoh. What he wants of the Israelites, what he wants of the Christians, is their whole life. He does not want them to be able to worship God on the side, go out in the wilderness, worship God, and then come back and be good servants for Egypt. That's how they function for a while. But Pharaoh said, I can't have that. I want to be a God unto myself. And because I want to be a God unto myself, I demand of the Israelites their full and utter worship of me. They cannot worship another God. And similarly, in the gospel reading, you hear of these demons that possess people. And what do they want? They want to take over your whole life. If one gets cast out, they want to bring seven others back with them and completely ruin and possess someone's life. That's what the devil wants. That's what the enemies of the gospel want. They want your whole life. They want you to be utterly taken away from God. And so when you are brought into the family of the Trinity by baptism, God also demands your whole life. To pretend like there is neutral or middle ground when it comes to serving God is foolish. There is no gray area. You are either light or you are dark. And so what does this life look like then? What does this whole identity in Christ? How do we live like this? What are the things that we do and don't do? It might not surprise you that it doesn't have to do with just being a die-hard Memphis Grizzlies fan or some other notion of identity that you may have about yourself. Paul lists three things at the beginning and he kind of repeats these three things over and over again that I think are good starting places for things we don't do here, let's say. Things that we don't do here. And much like a child needs to be reminded over and over again not to put his elbows on the table at dinner time. These are things that I think are good for Christians, faithful, practicing Christians, baptized children who are lights. the lord to still be reminded of over and over again because i think the three things that paul lists here i'll just tell you what they are now sexual immorality impurity and covetousness i think these are three of the most common or besetting sins that christians continue to struggle with throughout their lives so let's look at these in turn sexual immorality I think this is especially the case, of course, for younger people. When younger people are younger, they are more excitable in certain ways and more tempted in certain ways. And this is a base passion of mankind. It should be when people are young, rightly ordered in a marriage, the sexual passion But because of sinful corruption, there are so many false imitations of marriage now, so many ways that people can be and find themselves in sexual immorality, that it is incredibly hard, I think, especially for young people, but really for all people to avoid. The word for what gets translated here as sexual immorality would not surprise you is porneia. You can hear What that entails in the word and different kinds of porneia are everywhere now. They're on people's phones. They're on the TV openly. It's in the way that young people are encouraged to dress themselves nowadays. And on top of that, above those things, above the images, you have all sorts of unnatural desires. Homosexuality and others that are promoted now in our society as honored ways of living. And Paul himself also points out something that we might even be tempted to think of as minor when it comes to sexual immorality. But he is very clear about it. Filthiness and crude joking are other manifestations of this. And so the thing to realize about sexual immorality is that it is so constant in people's lives. And for that reason, it is very hard, especially for young people, to escape. But we don't do that here. The next word, impurity, is kind of an interesting word. It's a favorite word of Paul specifically. Jesus only uses it once, and other than that, Paul's the only one who uses this word, but it's taking the Old Testament idea of cleanness and uncleanness, of purity and impurity, of holiness and unholiness, and he's describing a certain way that someone can be in life. If you think about holiness, that is to be set apart from the world. It is to be like God. It is to be complete like God is complete, perfect like God is perfect, In other words, it is to be the humans that God made us to be, to live according to the design that he designed us. When Jesus uses this word, he uses it of the Pharisees. He says in the verse where he's talking about how they're like whitewashed tombs on the outside, but inside they're full of all kinds, he says, of impurity. In other words, I think this idea of impurity, the way Paul's using it, is to give yourself over to the world. You could be, like the Pharisees, on the outside, religious, but on the inside, they were living according to the values of the world. They wanted others to honor them in their life more than they cared about what God thought about them or what God had said to them. It's the kind of life where you value wealth more than you value wisdom. It's the kind of profligate living, where you're out to get as much as you can from the world, that leads to the kind of life, if you remember the story of the prodigal son, who wastes away all that he had because he wanted to be in the world, wanted what the world had to offer. It is, in short, selling your soul to gain the world. As much as we hate to admit it, this is also easy enough to happen in the church. On a smaller scale, it can happen in a church whenever the church becomes so concerned with peripheral things like what should we set the thermostat to? Should we or should we not get pews? What color should the cushions on the communion rail be? They get so concerned about things like that that they forget The gospel, they forget to bear one another burdens, they forget to encourage one another in the faith. It can happen on a larger scale in a church when a church slowly starts to adjust its doctrine to value the world's views of it more than God's views of it. Or it can also happen when church bureaucrats begin to care more about political votes and accomplishments than they do about the gospel going forth, new churches being planted, old churches being revitalized. All of that, in Paul's terms, for the Christian is impurity. Because for the Christian, the identity that we have, the thing that we do here, is we are pure. And if you think about the idea of purity, it is being clear, being pure in order that we can be clear of the cares of this world and pure in our motivation for the gospel. That's what we do here. We don't worry about all that other stuff. The final way, or the final thing that we do here, or that we don't do here, rather, as Paul instructs us, is covetousness. Now, just like sexual immorality that plagues young people in life, I think covetousness tends to beset people who are further along in life. Let's put it this way, as the sexual drive dissipates, the drive to have a decent retirement savings account increases. Now both of those things can be rightly ordered, of course. But just like sexual immorality, think about all the ways that the world offers us false gods to covet. There's money, of course. That's the obvious one. And there is a form of sexual coveting, which is an overlap of the two things. But I think one way to think about this, coveting the way that it affects our lives maybe most often, is as America's original sin. with our freedom, and with our capitalism, and with our consumerism, we want what we want when we want it. That's how we are. We want to be a self-made people. We will often use that term. And we want to be the greatest nation that there ever was. And I get it. I do consider myself to be a patriotic person. And there is certainly virtue in that. It is not sinful to work hard at a be successful or to work hard to be successful in that case and there's certainly no sin in loving your fatherland but we should ask ourselves this question when it comes to covetousness what has God given me and what has he given others that's the root of coveting to want something that God has given someone else that he has not given you and so do I love my nation because God gave it to me Or do I love it because I want to be better than every other nation out there? Do I demand products and consume them because God has provided for me in his mercy? Or do I just want what everyone else has, and I want to have the same status as everyone else? If our answers are the latter and not the former, we have some thinking to do about our covetous nature. And so dear Christian, with all these things, let me just be your dad at the dinner table right now. We don't do these things here. Paul makes it very simple for you to think about sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Let these things not even be named among you. They should not even enter your mind so that you would be able to say them out loud. Let them not even be named among you. And then he gives you some practical advice to work on that, to let that happen more and more. He says, don't become, this is paraphrasing, don't become best friends with people who regularly make a practice out of these things. Don't hang around people too much whose entire identity is doing these things rather than not doing them. And why is that? It's because we learn from imitation. We learn by imitating those who we value. And so that gets us back to the beginning. Be imitators of God. Now, all of this can sound like quite the task. In fact, it sounds almost like an impossible task. But look again at verse 8. You are light in the The Lord in the Lord when the light came into the world that light John says was Jesus Christ and the darkness could not overcome it it could not comprehend it and so dear Saints remember in the Lord because it's in that Lord in the Lord who was the perfect light that you are baptized You are baptized into the light. You are baptized into Jesus. And Jesus, the light of the world, he died to sin. And so when you died to sin, in your baptism, you died with him. Those things that we don't do, they have been drowned. They have been washed away. And whenever those things come bubbling up back to the surface, you can push them back down. Because even though you died to sin, you were raised again, just like Jesus was raised again. You were raised again out of those baptismal waters with him. He is your identity. You are identified with him. He is your God and you can imitate him. And so if those sins come back to tempt you, throw them back into those waters. It's who you are. You are allowed to do that. You don't have to give in to them. It's not who you are. It's not what we do here. But who we are now is light. And so you can walk in the light, for that is who you are. And when you walk in the light, when you walk in the light of the Lord, because you are light, you will then bear fruit. And Paul simply leaves it at this. When you bear fruit as light, it is fruit that is good and right and true. And so be light in the Lord today and every day. To him, the true light be all the honor and glory now and forever. Amen.